Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue our verse-by-verse expositional series in the book of Romans, we now find ourselves in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. That text says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We arrived here at Romans 1.18 by first taking a look at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. There, the Apostle Paul introduces himself, greets those to whom he writes, and then he exalts the gospel. In fact, in verses 16 to 17, Paul gives us reasons why he is not ashamed of the gospel. That is, not only does the gospel contain God's saving power, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The consequence of believing the gospel is that a man gets right with God because through Christ, the relationship between God and man is repaired. This results in eternal life because faith has eternal benefits. Next, the apostle goes on to describe not the benefits of belief, but the dangers of unbelief. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Paul begins an argument that runs all the way to Romans chapter 3 verse 20. The argument is that all of humankind is guilty. Paul begins globally talking about members of humanity without special revelation. His focus then narrows, and he ends up talking about the Jews, a particular covenantal people with special revelation. What Paul masterfully makes clear is that all are condemned, both Gentile and Jew alike. That is, if the Gentile without the law is condemned, then so was the Jew. If the Jew with the law is condemned, then so was the Gentile. This is why everyone is in desperate need of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now before we begin unpacking Romans 1.18, let's take a big picture look at Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 overall. This section answers a critical question. Why has God manifested his righteousness, and why can it only be appropriated by faith? The answer is because if God did not manifest his righteousness, humankind would have no hope. Because man is inherently sinful, he is incapable of achieving the divine righteousness that God demands. God had to therefore reveal his righteousness. And, because man cannot work to obtain God's righteousness, he must simply trust in what God has done and appropriate divine righteousness by faith. Why did Jesus come in the first place? Why did the Son of God have to die on a cross? Because if he did not, all would have fallen short of the glory of God and all would have perished. God manifested his righteousness because man could not save himself, therefore God had to do it. But even more than that, Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 explains that the God of the Bible is a God of wrath and that wrath is manifest against sin. Yes, beloved, God is a God of wrath, and if you don't have wrath, then you don't have the God of the Bible. And as long as God is God, he is not indifferent to sin. Sin, in fact, is cosmic treason in the eyes of a holy God. Now, I realize we live in a day and age where people do not like talking about the wrath of God. 
they would rather hear that God is full of grace and mercy and that God is love. Well, the Bible says that the same God who is love also reveals his wrath. So, if you do not like the God of wrath, then that also means you do not like the God of love. And even more, out of love, God sent his son to die so that all those who believe in him will not perish. What Jesus did at Calvary was the ultimate act of love to spare the elect from the wrath of God. So, whenever someone balks at God's wrath, my response is always the same. If God revealed a way for you to be spared from his wrath, then why do you reject his love as demonstrated through his son? So God reveals his wrath against sin and the sinners who commit the sin. Now the thinking person may ask, well, what about the person who never read the Bible? What about the innocent native who lives in the middle of nowhere who has never heard the gospel? How can God reveal his wrath against them? What Paul explains in Romans 1, 18-32 is that every human being has an awareness of God written on their hearts. It's called a conscience. Within each and every human being, God has placed an awareness of himself by giving us all a sense of right and wrong. Thus, our conscience is what condemns us even when we consider doing something evil. It whispers to us and says, that is not right, don't do that. The point is that an awareness of God is universal no matter where you live or when you lived. Every human being is equipped with a basic God-given sense of right and wrong, even if you never heard the gospel, never went to church, or never read the Bible. This God-given sense of right and wrong makes everyone aware of God. What every person then becomes guilty of is suppressing the truth. They muffle the whisper that tells them to stop. They take what they do know about God, hold it, restrain it, and then stuff it deep, deep down. They do that so they won't have to bother dealing with the cries of conscience that say, stop, don't, danger. Now why do people do that? Why do we do that? Why do I do that? Because of unbelief. We trust something other than God. We trust in a lie, temporary gratification, or in the world's way of doing things. But no one can get rid of their God-given conscience, so the person must now suppress its pleadings and purposefully reject the Lord. Hence, the suppression of the truth is neither passive or involuntary. It is active and willful. All human beings are guilty of this suppression of the truth. So people are without excuse because we have a sense of God on the inside. But not only that, we also have a sense of God on the outside. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that God has also made himself evident in creation so that even though we don't see God, we see what he has made. As a result, the invisible God is made evident through that which is visible. By unrighteousness then, people not only suppress internal evidence of God, they also reject external evidence of God. Take a moment and look around. In order to look, you must be alive, and in order to see, you must have eyes. You played no role in giving birth to you, so where did life come from other than a living source? Where did vision come from if not from a creator who already understood what sight is? Where did thoughts come from if not from a mind? Why is there life instead of things? Why do we live in a world hospitable to life? 
Where do all the patterns of life come from? Why do our days move from light to dark, from dark to light? And why does our planet revolve around the sun in a fixed cycle? Where do the physical laws come from that govern all these processes? Our DNA is a language that contains complex, specified information. If every other source of complex, specified information in life, like a book, a song, or a podcast, if all of these sources of information always come from an intelligent designer, then why would we think the rules are any different for humans who are infinitely more complex than a catchy tune? The point is that God's attributes, power, and nature are evident everywhere. In fact, in creation, God is constantly shouting at humanity. God's revelation of humankind is therefore universal, internal, and external. Hence, no one is without excuse and is accountable to God. But it does not stop there. Even though God's revelation is everywhere, people still reject the Lord. But because people were made to worship, people don't just reject God and remain neutral. Instead, they commit the cardinal sin of humankind, which is idolatry. Idolatry simply means worshiping something else other than God. Since people have to worship something, if they are not worshiping God, they exchange his truth for a lie and then worship something else. The idol could be a false god, it could be the self, it could be another person, it could be an ideology, you get the point. But since sin is detrimental, and because God reveals his wrath against sin, when a man suppresses God's truth and commits idolatry, it causes problems. It begins to destroy him from the inside. In fact, because suppressing divine truth is traumatic, idolatry becomes appealing because it temporarily alleviates the pain. It's crucial not to miss the point that idolatry does not necessarily mean that people are not religious. On the contrary, some of the most extreme forms of idolatry are saturated with religion. Think about the groups in Jesus' day that were the most religious, yet the farthest from God, the scribes and Pharisees. These were the folks that served themselves, and their self-righteousness was legitimized with all their external displays of religion. In many cases, deeply religious idolatry is an escape so its practitioners can look at themselves in the mirror and pretend that they are not falling apart. They can pretend that they are right with God when His divine truth says otherwise. And here's the thing. People engage in idolatry because they want to. They want it. They desire it because it is not God and is therefore not as offensive. It is not holy, it is more relatable, and it is much more common, so that it is just like me. Because people pursue idolatry by natural inclination, God does not have to force anyone into idolatry. Just look at the Hebrews, God's own people, when Moses went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. When he was up there, the people were busy fashioning a golden calf and ushering in the first false worship service. Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6. The more a person stuffs down God's truth deeper and deeper, God will subsequently give the person exactly what they want, not him. The person will tell God, I don't want you, and God's response is, thy will be done. The result is that God hands the person over to themselves, and he punishes their sin with sin. 
The farther and farther away a person flees from the Lord, the more immoral and depraved they become until they reach a point where they call bad good, they call good bad, and they celebrate and encourage the evil that others do. The horrendous results are the list of vices detailed in Romans chapter 1 verses 29 to 32. When a man runs away from God, he never actually gets away from him. What he does get is to experience life without the redeeming, sanctifying, protective grace of God. What that life looks like is full of anger, sadness, frustration, dissatisfaction, and a perpetual feeling of emptiness, just to name a few features. Have you ever wondered why there are no new sins? Have you ever wondered why, since the beginning of time, no matter what society you are talking about, people have been plagued by the same problems over and over again? Wonder no more, because the answer is here in Romans 1. The answer is that when which that which is known about God is suppressed in man's heart, that suppression causes a spiritual disruption that nudges a man farther and farther away from the Lord. The result is a fracturing of everything good. The result is more sin, more immorality, more evil, and in the end, man's own destruction. Truly, humanity is not evolving, it is devolving. It is devolving into depravity, evidenced by the fact that the innate condition of man has not changed since Adam was exiled from paradise. Now, man has better access to sin with better technology and will be cheered on by others, telling him it's perfectly okay. As R.C. Sproul always used to say, Romans 1 tells us that there are no real atheists. While the fool says in his heart there is no God, in his mind he actually does know that God is real. The so-called professing atheist hates God, so he suppresses his awareness of the Lord down so deep that he does not acknowledge Him as Lord anymore. At the end of the day, people can say or think whatever they desire about God. That still does not change who He is, nor the facts of faith. In Romans 1 verses 18 to 32, because sin is seen as a universal, powerful, and destructive force, it becomes readily evident why the righteousness of the Lord can only be experienced as a gift of grace. That is, these verses give the Bible reader a sober insight into the human condition, and that insight is not optimistic. The text is this way by design, for the Apostle Paul must define the extent and weight of the bad news before he expounds the good news. Here and now is a lesson for all Bible teachers. The Apostle Paul presents the gospel by telling the bad news first, and then he tells the good news. He preaches the gospel by revealing the wrath of God first, and then explains how Christ made a propitiation for our sins. He says that a man is not right with God first, and then he reveals that Christ is the means by which a man gets right with God. Paul, of course, got this pattern from God. First, in the Old Testament, the Lord revealed his law, which condemned. Now, in the New Testament, he reveals his gospel, which saves. I personally do not think I have been preaching long enough to give preachers any advice, but the biblical model to preach the gospel is judgment and wrath first, then grace, law first, then gospel. People will start taking sin seriously when they are aware of how serious sin is. 
that it is lethal in 100% of cases. Once a man's heart is open to the reality that he has the soul-crushing disease of sin, then he will flee to the great physician who can heal him. I realize that was a very long introduction, so let's dive into today's theme verse. Again, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now we shall discuss the wrath of God more thoroughly. People do not like talking about divine wrath, as I alluded to before. Why is this? Because they tend to think of wrath in human terms, and that type of wrath is perceived as evil and cruel. Human wrath conjures up images of a man who is emotional and angry, of a man who is unhinged and is not rational, of a man whose speech and actions are flavored with hate, and so he goes on a rampage, harming innocent bystanders. Yet, this depiction has nothing to do with divine wrath. The wrath of God differs tremendously from the wrath of men. God is not of earth, and he is above earthly things. His ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9. The point is that divine wrath is not the same as human anger. Human anger is a human emotion, and human emotions are polluted by sin. God's wrath is never polluted by sin because he is sinless. So with that understanding in mind, what is a clear definition of what the wrath of God is? In his commentary, The Epistle to the Romans, John Murray has provided a classic definition. He says, quote, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness, end quote. God's holiness and sin are incompatible. Therefore, the God of the universe reveals his holy revulsion against sin, that which contradicts his purity, perfection, and separateness. Simply put, holiness cannot tolerate unholiness, and God's wrath is his punitive justice against sin. It is a just wrath against those who are not just. So on the one hand, Christians delight in the Lord our God, who is a spiritual father to orphans, who is good, and whose loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 100 verse 5. God is the one who sent his son to die on a cross and endure the wrath of God for the elect. To that proclamation, the church says yea and amen. But on the other hand, the same God of grace is also a God of wrath. We are made in God's image. We do not fashion God based on personal preferences. Thus, if you accept God's grace and mercy, then you must also accept his wrath. God's wrath is terrible and rightfully installs dread in the hearts of fallen people. Many professing Christians would even go as far to claim that God's wrath is, quote, primitive, quote, barbaric, or, quote, offensive. The just wrath of a holy God traumatizes people, which begs the question, who would ever dare make it up? But let's take a closer look at this word wrath. The Greek word for wrath in Romans 1.18 is orge. It's important to note what this Greek word precisely communicates because it does not mean a sudden outburst of anger where the person is out of control. There is actually another word in Greek for that. That word is thumos. 
Subsequently, when we think of wrath, we ought not to think of a reflexive, sudden explosion of rage. Rather, we ought to think of an established, determined opposition to something. In fact, orge communicates the idea of teeming or swelling up to a certain point. It refers to a settled internal disposition based on continued extended exposure. The expression of orge, or the expression of wrath, therefore is a controlled, unrelenting fury against evil and wickedness that has persisted over long periods of time. Hence, day by day and year by year, as people ignore the Lord and reject His Son, this solidifies the wrath of God against sin. What holds God's wrath back is His grace and His long-suffering. God hates sin, and as this hatred builds with time, His wrath becomes more settled due to all the wanton violations of His holiness. Again, verse 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed. The other way of translating this verb is to say that the wrath of God is being revealed or is being made known. This tells us that heavenly wrath is not going to be experienced at some point in the far future. That experience is, in fact, a present reality. Now, the rest of verse 18 tells us against what and to whom the wrath of God is being made known, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This now begs a question. If God's wrath is constantly being revealed, how is it being revealed? It's impossible to answer this question just by looking at verse 18 alone, so we have to consider verses 18 to 32 as a unit. The simplest way to understand how God reveals His wrath is two major ways. One, in God giving people over to their own sinful desires, and two, in the moral order. In plain English, this means how God reveals His wrath is that He actually gives people what they want. For those who reject Him, He withdraws His presence that protects people from being as bad as they can be. The result is deeper and deeper depravity and men reaping greater consequences of their own sin. This reveals God's wrath in that instead of God protecting a person from experiencing tempered consequences of willful sin, He allows them to experience greater and greater consequences of moral corruption. This includes not only to want to continue sinning, but also an increased desire for more sin. The end result is someone with a depraved mind who not only loves sin and hates God, but they have a worldview that inverts the moral order. They call evil good and call good evil and give their hearty approval to everyone who delights in wickedness. The grand irony of all of this is that when a person walks away from God's grace, they only run into God's judgment. God reveals His wrath in that when a man dives deeper into sin, he experiences more soul trouble and greater shame. The man to whom God reveals His wrath therefore has a harder and harder time dealing with life and looking at himself in the mirror. Hence, as Charles Hodge notes in A Commentary on Romans, God's wrath is specifically revealed in the inherent tendency of moral evil to produce misery. And let us also not forget that death and eternal condemnation is the ultimate consequence of unrepentant sin. 
In Sheol, the reprobate will have the wrath of God revealed against them forever. That God's wrath is revealed in the ways I just described finds support in verses 19 through 32. To provide a very brief overview, in verses 24, 26, and 28, the text says that God gave over those who rejected him. With each stage of giving over, the person desires sin more and more, and the Lord gives them exactly what they want. The result is a person at their worst, described with a catalog of vices in verses 29 to 32. Examples of such vices are wickedness, greed, murder, strife, deceit, malice, inventors of evil, unloving, and unmerciful. It is important to note that people do not reject God in isolation. They do so socially. In fact, many of the evils listed at the end of Romans 1 are social evils. The point is that when God reveals His wrath from heaven, it affects individuals who are also members of groups. Groups like families, clubs, communities, and even nations. It's no wonder, then, that throughout the history of civilization, immorality has always been associated with the decline and death of a nation. Why is that? Because of the wrath of God being revealed. If a society delights in sin, sin fractures relationships between people, between families, and groups that live with each other. The result is that a society disintegrates from the inside. To provide historical evidence, I would invite all listeners to consider the famous work by British historian Edward Gibbon. He is most well known for his classic, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. There, he provides five reasons why Rome fell. What were two reasons? The decay of religion and the craving for more and more pleasure. In other words, morality was on the decline because people turned away from God and pursued the dark passions of their own hearts. This was a major contributing factor to societal collapse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So far, we've talked about how the wrath of God is revealed, but against what is it revealed? The text says against ungodliness and unrighteousness. What do these terms mean? Basically sin. Sin is specified in not being right with God, ungodliness, and not being right with other people, unrighteousness. All sin falls into either of these categories. When God gave his people the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments spoke to how people related to God, such as worship God alone. The final six commandments spoke to how people related to one another, such as honor your parents and don't lie. God gave guidelines on how to interact with him first because how we interact with our neighbors flows out of our relationship with God. In fact, the Bible says over and over again that the only way a man can be right with life and others is if he is right with God first. The primary relationship any person has is vertical with their maker. The way to thus repair horizontal relationships is never by thinking horizontally, it's by thinking vertically. If you only think horizontally, you get righteousness without godliness. That is what society calls good people, humanitarians, or moral people. False religion has even perfected godless righteousness into an art form so that a man may be comforted by his righteous works 
all the while despising God. So biblically speaking, genuine righteousness always flows from godliness. The inverse is also true, that unrighteousness flows from ungodliness. That point is crucial to understand for any Christian counselor or for any servant that deals with other people. Because unrighteousness flows from ungodliness, the root problem is never unrighteousness. The root problem is never the specific sins someone else is committing. The root problem is always their relationship with God. The root disease is sin and a fractured relationship between a man and God. Hence, if you were to deal only with unrighteousness, then you are only managing symptoms. If you are only to deal with unrighteousness, you don't need an open Bible. Focusing on godliness, talking about God, and expounding the gospel, that is what transforms a person from the inside and manifests as changed outward behavior. Let us not forget our first parents, Adam and Eve. The reason why the world is broken is because Adam rebelled against God first. It always begins there. The reason why sin entered the picture in the first place has the least to do with eating fruit from a tree and the most to do with not trusting God. The last thing we will talk about in verse 18 is why God's wrath is revealed. The final part of the verse tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Here now we have the cause of God's wrath. God reveals his wrath because men sin and suppress the truth. The word suppress comes from a Greek word that can also be translated to restrain, bind, arrest, or to hold down. The point is that God's wrath is not revealed against people who are ignorant. Rather, it is revealed against men who know some form of God's truth, but they don't want to deal with the consequences of that truth. They don't want to obey it. Notably, this truth is not special Bible knowledge. It is a general knowledge about God. So what then do they do knowing this truth? They apply active force and suppress it. They bind it and hold it down. They fight against it and stuff it deep, deep down. And what is the result of that purposeful restraint? That God reveals his wrath. Now let's pause here for a moment and consider the gravity of this phenomenon. That the single sin that provokes God's wrath against humanity is the sin of truth suppression. This single sin tells us that people actually know the truth, they just don't desire the truth. God does not therefore hold people accountable for what they don't know. He holds people accountable for what they do with what they do know. So what does suppressing the truth look like? It can take many different forms and is not just something unsaved people do. If you are a member of the human race, you are guilty of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It may mean knowing that God is real, but you hate God, so you violently lash out against Christians with a militant form of atheism. It may mean reading your Bible and saying, I don't believe that, or God did not mean what he said. It could mean hearing a faithful sermon that speaks directly into your life, but you hold down the inclination to change and settle for what you've been doing. It could mean downplaying or minimizing what God says to make it less offensive in public. 
It could mean rationalizing your own sin or rationalizing your own lordship over your life. It could mean abandoning unity of spirit in favor of tolerance of the flesh. It could mean denying that God is a God of wrath and asserting that in the end, everyone gets saved. It could mean having a very high view of yourself and a very low view of God. Now, if truth suppression provokes God's wrath, what now happens when a man embraces, proclaims, encourages, obeys, and lives God's truth? Then he will experience God's mercies, blessings, and favor because he will be right with God. In John 8.32, Jesus says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. God's truth is never an abstract idea. It is a person who is Christ. Jesus refers to himself as the truth in John 14.6. Suppressing the truth therefore means rejecting Christ or holding down the fact of who Jesus really is, Lord and Savior. The truth of God's Son sets people free. This is why Paul was set apart for the gospel of God and sent on a mission to preach that gospel over the known world. That will be all for Romans 1.18. Next time, we'll be talking about Romans 1.19. Now, as we look ahead to the end of Romans chapter 1, what becomes clear is that the remainder of this chapter explains why the wrath of God against humanity is justified. That is, God has revealed himself, man suppresses God's truth, and now God expresses his just wrath. By design, Paul makes his gospel case by making sure everyone knows first they are under God's wrath before he tells them about the way of escape, the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.